Today's podcast is brought to you by Citizen Path. It's a new way to prepare U.S. immigration forms. It's an online service that makes it easy to prepare and file USCIS applications and petitions. Believe me, as a nationalized citizen, I know the hassle. Citizen Path gives you instant alerts if there's a problem. The service even provides a guarantee, yes, a guarantee that USCIS will approve the form. Citizen Path was designed by immigration attorneys, but it's significantly less expensive than an attorney. And here's the fun part. Immigrantly listeners can use coupon code immigrantly to save 15%. You can visit their website at citizenpath.com. What we're talking about here, climate and its many ripple effects, are going to impact every single person on this planet. It is important for anyone, regardless of what they've studied or what they do for a living, to contribute whatever their contribution can be. I study why there is so much resistance to information, why people put up cognitive barriers, and why we are influenced by what you wouldn't expect to be influencing you. I became a behavioral scientist that actually applies behavioral science to addressing climate change, hopefully um, resulting in better behavioral outcomes. We need people to change. Immigrantly, I am your host, Sadia Khan. Before I introduce today's guest, a few housekeeping items. We are in the midst of our Ramadan fundraising drive and I'm asking you, our listeners, to contribute to it. Now, here's the thing. If you are a coffee drinker, especially Starbucks coffee drinker, I'm asking you to forego one day's worth of Starbucks coffee. Just one cup. And donate to Immigrantly. We are so grateful that you come back every week and listen to our episodes, subscribe and promote. We need your help to sustain our podcast. And if you don't want to donate to our Ramadan drive, you can become our sustaining member on Patreon for as low as $5 a month. Help us grow this platform. I am really, really, really asking you this time. So do consider it. Moving on, can you believe it? Days are getting longer and we are getting closer to summer. There is a lot more energy in the air and Poland for that matter. I am excited for warmer days because I feel like for too long we haven't allowed ourselves to make plans or to look forward to these social moments but with vaccines rolling out and I hope you got your vaccines and most states opening to the general public these faraway thoughts are returning to the periphery and it feels so good to reach out for them but to be honest I feel like at the same time we should recognize that the past year of turbulence uncertainty and even loss has really tested our humanity our sense of being a long road of recovery is ahead, but recovery means learning from our past actions so that we can repair and prepare. 
I am thinking about how experts say this may not be the last pandemic in our lifetime, how climate change and COVID are inextricably linked, not causally, but in pretty much all other aspects. For example, a study done by the Harvard School of Public Health found that the risk of death from COVID is greater for those who live in places with poorer air quality. And what we breathe in has to do with our environment. And because of a warming earth, scientists are predicting the emergence of new diseases due to temperature and rainfall changes. While I am not an expert on these matters, the facts are laid plainly for us to bear. And it is our responsibility to own it. Today's guest will help us unpack these difficult matches shedding light on ways in which behavioral changes at individual and community levels can positively impact the course of climate change. Shetha Chakraborty is a renowned scientist, consultant, communicator and activist. She's appeared on MSNBC, CBS, spoken at TED Talks, run her own podcast and get this. She also works full-time as a consultant to public and private organizations on risk management. How she finds time to do all this, I don't know, but I can't wait for you to meet her. Just an FYI, during the interview, I pronounced Sheta's name incorrectly. As a South Asian, I thought I knew how to pronounce her name, but my bad, I should have asked her as to how she pronounces her name. Hopefully next time I will be more careful. Let's get started. Yes, we are ready. We are rolling. Swetha, thank you so much for coming on today. I am so excited and I have a bunch of questions for you. Okay, excellent. I'm ready. So I feel like I am in the presence of a celebrity right now not anyone like Kim K or Justin Bieber you're a celebrity of the news world you've covered so many channels and acted I feel like in so many instances as the expert voice on climate related matches yet my understanding is that your education is in the behavioral sciences in particular risk management right Yes, that's correct. So can you explain how you forged this blended path, one which combines cognition with climate? Yeah, I can absolutely. And it's so funny you said Kim K, because in a lot of my presentations, I say, since I started doing media and since I started getting real pushback, when I'm just talking about science, that's it. But some communities and audiences are very hostile to hearing the science, especially if it conflicts with some existing beliefs that they hold. And uh when I started getting really bad pushback, I remember thinking, oh, this must be what Kim Kardashian feels like. <laughs> but that was really funny. And I had a newfound appreciation for these celebrities that put themselves out there. So yeah. yeah, I don't put myself nearly close to that status, but my goal is to build as much of a platform as I can to get this information out to the widest audiences. Because what we're talking about here, climate and its many ripple effects, are going to impact every single person on this planet. And hmm. it is important for anyone, regardless of what they've studied or what they do for a living, to contribute whatever their contribution can be, whether that's some real technical expertise or even art or even music. There's some role that people can play towards helping address this climate crisis. It's one of the few things that we as humans all have a stake in. Hmm. If you eat food, if you breathe water, if you drink air, 
you need to care about the climate crisis and you need to contribute something to it. So I will try and use my platform as much as I can to reach audiences. We really need to get to people, especially those who have been resistant. So that's what I did. So to answer your question, sorry, long-winded way to get to your question. <laughs> that's what I do as a behavioral scientist. I study why there is so much resistance to information, why people put up cognitive barriers and yeah. why we are uh, influenced by what you wouldn't expect to be influencing you. We're every day subliminally influenced by what I refer to as cognitive triggers. Mm -hmm. And that's how available something is um, that gives people the impression that it's more probabilistic or more frequent than it actually is. For example, the risk of dying in a plane crash, people think is much higher than is actually the case. The reason is because when a plane crash happens, even though it's a rare event and kills in the hundreds of people, not in the thousands of people, still one life is too many to be lost, but it's a small number compared to some of the big, big risks that are killing hundreds of thousands to millions of people every year. And yet humans prescribe greater frequency of likelihood of something like a plane crash happening because of how sensational it is and because mm -hmm. how much the media reports on it. These are the quirks of our brains. And I always found it fascinating. So I really wanted to study it. That's what I did in my academic life is I studied behavioral science, the way our brain is wired, how we process information around risk. And then once I learned about the climate crisis, I was like, well, exactly what I said. I couldn't look back. I have a stake in having this planet be habitable. And I felt I had to contribute my expertise in behavioral science in some way to addressing the climate crisis. So that's how I made the transition or the pivot really from academia into media and into policy. And I became a behavioral scientist that actually applies behavioral science to addressing climate change, really by better communicating and hopefully um, resulting in better behavioral outcomes. We need people to change, ultimately. That's what I do. Right. And how did you develop interest in our awareness of climate change? Oh, yes. Right. So I didn't know about it until I was actually teaching at Columbia University and I was uh, teaching a class called Carbon Management and Decision Making. I'd done my doctorate and postdoctorate in behavioral science. I was applying it to healthcare and understanding yeah. how to get better patient outcomes. Why were patients making poor decisions about their own health outcomes? Mm. I mean, if we can't even get individuals to care about their health, how are we going to get groups of people to care about the planet? <laughs> That's even right. more complicated, <laughs> right? So right. I was really focused on individuals making better decisions around improving their own outcomes. And why is it that people don't make decisions that are in their own interest in that sense. Again, it's because of the quirks of our brains. We're just, we're not programmed to think ahead like that necessarily to the different risks that we can face. We tend to think we're going to be fine. It's not going to happen to us. We're over-optimistic. All of these things we suffer from, but we know that and we can confront it and we can overcome it. So this was my area of study and expertise. And then I went to Columbia University. I'm from yeah. New York. Yeah. And, um, the lady who hired me, the professor who hired me, Elkie Weber, she's now at Princeton at the Kahneman Center for Behavioral Science. And she asked me to teach this master's course. And I remember thinking, well, I don't know anything about carbon sequestration, much less climate change. Right. But what I learned was, well, one, I learned from the students. It was incredible how much it was two-way learning. But also I learned that behavioral science has real applications for any sector, but especially those that require real, not just individual, but real widespread societal behavioral change. So once mm. I started teaching and learning about it, then I couldn't turn back. That's when I realized the extent of this problem and the extent of 
how much we need to break down silos. It's not just an engineering issue. It's not just environmental science issue. We need social scientists. We need sociologists, anthropologists, um, behavioral scientists, neuroscientists. We need people that are mental health experts. We need artists. We need musicians. We need everyone to collaborate and work together to get this message across and to really create widespread change. Otherwise, we're setting ourselves for a path that we would not wish on our worst enemies. So that you bring up such an important point about collaboration. What I always find interesting about discussion around climate change is that most of the time it is um, contextualized within the context of science. And now we know science is solid on climate change. But I feel like it somehow doesn't resonate with individuals as much if we were to recalibrate it and talk a little bit more about human element of it, it would resonate with people more because climate change is about so many things. It's about housing. It is about healthcare. It is about extreme weather, sustainability, jobs. There are so many different dimensions to climate change that we don't talk about. And as humans, I feel we are not really rational arbitrators of risk assessment unless we feel it impacts us directly in some form. What are your thoughts on that? That was beautifully said. I might steal your words. That's exactly it. We are not rational decision makers. In fact, we systematically depart from rational decision making. Mm. That's one thing that is kind of the underlying premise of behavioral science and behavioral economics is that rational market theories assume that people make decisions that are aligned to improving overall utility for themselves and their, you know, families, communities, but that's not how we behave. Again, we are influenced by these triggers that actually veer us far off the path of rational decision-making. We overreact systematically to Mm. risks that we should not be worried about so much, like these plane crashes and many other things like uh, actually even terrorist attacks, even though terrorist Mm. attacks are increasing because of climate change, the likelihood that we are going to see much more terrorism in the future is is on the rise, absolutely. But again, these are risks that are sensationalized through the media, and so they result in people overreacting. And then on the flip side, things that are attenuated through the media systematically Mm. result in people underreacting. So you have people who really should care much more about their cardiovascular outcomes. In the United States, that's the leading cause of killer in Americans. But people don't seem to care so much about um, high cholesterol and blood pressure and all of that leading to a stroke or a heart attack. And we underestimate the risk of something like that happening and ultimately killing us or somebody we're close to. So we systematically depart from rational decision making. The way to get people better calibrated, and by that I mean react accurately, not overreact, not underreact, Hmm. but to actually react aligned to the reality of the risk that is being faced, is to make these risks, like you said, that seem to be far away, slow moving, too scientific, something impacting someone else on another country, not related to us, change the framing of how it's communicated so it is framed as relevant and urgent. And tell stories. Tell these science stories that are going to be relevant for people regardless of who they are and where they are on the planet. Make it urgent and relevant now. And that's what scientists have historically been very poor at doing. It's why we find ourselves in the situation that we're in, especially in the United States where we're exceptionally polarized. Um, It's because the trust in communicators 
was actually attributed more to those who had the loudest voices or maybe were the most popular, mm -hmm. but not necessarily the most scientifically accurate. So we need to close that gap by improving, especially as scientists, how we communicate to different demographics and understanding where they will appreciate the information. What mm -hmm. are their mental models? What do they already believe, not believe? Where is errors in their perception? What do they care about or not care about? And based on that, mapping these mental models then can allow us to better tell the story in a way that's going to cross through any sort of cognitive barriers that people have, any resistance to the information, to the science, and ultimately hopefully give people better information to secure their futures. So that's a responsibility we really have collectively as scientists, policymakers, communicators. It's our job to better communicate. So how do we convince skeptics of climate change who mostly seem to be conservatives in the U.S.? How do we create a narrative that resonates with them based on their um, understanding? Great question. That's what I've been doing since I've been in Washington, D.C. So one thing we have to remember, it's not that all conservatives don't believe in climate change in the United States. Hmm. It's that if you say you don't believe in climate change, you are most likely a conservative. So there is a correlation there. It's not causal. Yeah. It's not yeah. that being conservative means you don't believe in climate, but there is definitely an identity link there. And so mm. we have to just be honest of what the issue is and we have to address it. And it's because it's a sociology issue is that once people identify as part of a tribe and in the U.S. that's a political identity, let's say, mm. that, that becomes highly correlated to things that shouldn't actually be related to your political identity, but they tend to be because they get folded into the same group. So if you're conservative in America, most likely you are underestimating the risk of climate as compared to somebody who identifies as liberal. You're also probably underestimating the risk of COVID-19 and less likely to be wearing a mask than right. somebody who identifies as a liberal. So we have to remember there's powerful, deep affiliations with one's political identity. So that's interesting. Now, once we know that, though, again, there's ways we can address it. The way I've addressed it and what I've seen to be really robust and work really well is what does that identity, what does that group, what does that tribe care about? Well, the one thing conservatives in America, for sure, and Americans more broadly, but especially conservatives, care about is national security. Once we start talking about climate as a national security threat by saying it's a threat multiplier, it's not that these other conflicts don't exist, like uh, the Syrian war, for example, or human migrations of people. These are things that were already happening and underway, but climate change is exasperating them. And that mm. is something that is really resonating well with that community because when you are supporting our national sovereignty and putting young men and women on the front lines to protect that national sovereignty, you want to do your part to ensure that they are protected as much as possible. And if you can help mitigate against conditions that are going to lessen the risks that troops face, not mm. just protecting the U.S. borders, but U.S. interests all over the world, then that is a message that truly does resonate. Let me give you one example. Black flag training days is when the military cannot train because it's too hot, so it's too dangerous. And that's over 90 degrees Fahrenheit. That is increasing every year. So the amount of days that the military is not able to train is increasing on a yearly basis, increasing number of black flag training days. That is something that you can link directly to the fact that the temperatures are warming. That is something that if you explain to constituents and groups of people in the U.S. that don't believe in climate, well, if you say, well, how about the fact that it's too hot to train? Your children cannot actually be best prepared for facing adversaries. Mm. That mm. works. And then also there's a base. I mean, there's many bases that are um, vulnerable. 
But the one that I like to point to is in Norfolk, Virginia, is a massive naval base. And it's flooded out so frequently that military personnel that don't live on base can't even get access to it hmm. in parts of the year because of sea level rise and storm surges. So these are very real, visible things that we can put forward to communities to make it very clear to them that maybe you don't care about climate change. Forget it. We don't have to talk about climate change. But your young men and women in uniform are at risk. So that's one option. Do you experience digital eye strain from too much blue light exposure from digital screens? Baxter blue glasses are not your average frames. These blue light lenses filter 80% of the highest energy blue light, eliminating 99% of glare. The past year, we've all been glued to our devices more than ever. As a podcaster, I spent a lot of time working on my laptop from timestamping, recording, pre-post-production work to social media campaigns. Our exposure to digital light has soared and our eyes and our sleep are suffering as a result. And I can vouch for that. Baxter Blue is also a force for good and provides a pair of reading glasses for someone in need for every pair sold. Isn't that wonderful? This is eyewear built for our digital age and Baxter Blue is giving our listeners, immigrantly listeners, 10% off your next purchase of blue light, sleep or kids glasses. Click the link in our show notes for your exclusive discount. This is the sign you have been waiting for to invest in blue light glasses. We know you will love your Baxters and we know that you will feel the difference. We've already established that climate disaster is man-made. We've not been smart in our relationship with the planet and how we use material, how we manage waste even. But do you think that food scarcity in addition to climate change is man-made in terms of how resources are distributed? And that in itself is indicative of unfair power and wealth across different nations. Oh, just a casual question then, huh? <laughs> no, that's very thoughtful. It's a, it's a it's a very good question. It's a very big question. Um, yeah. It's a very complicated, interconnected system. And most of these are completely man-made constructs. And if the beauty of things being man-made is they can be remade. Right. And that's what I always say is none of this is set in stone. We need to see a groundswell of change. And then we will see those who have, especially in Western democracies, those we have voted into power to then have the political will to actually make some tough decisions that may seem more painful now, mm. but that ultimately are better for everybody in the future. There is nothing to be gained from having people suffering, especially mass suffering around the world. People can only stay protected and secure for so long until the collective suffering reaches that individual, one individual person that thinks that they are immune to it. That's what we have to remind people, that there's no alternative planet there's no going to Mars yet. I mean, <laughs> people who came up with the systems really underestimated how finite the resources on the planet are uh -huh. or really thought that Mars was going to be an option sooner than it is because we really just have one planet that we all collectively inhabit and we really need to recognize there's no winners and losers when it comes to climate change. The losers will ultimately make everybody losers. And that's, that's how I express that. 
So let's talk about solutions now. We have new administration and it seems like Biden's $3 trillion infrastructure plan is centered around climate resilience. There are a lot of provisions that will tackle climate change and climate crisis. Without going into detail of that, I wanted to get your thoughts on the plan itself And what would you prioritize as a policy proposal if you had a seat, say, in the White House? Ooh, I like that. At some point in the future, from your ears to the nomination board. (laughs) From your mouth to the nomination board. Um, Yes, hopefully at some point. I'd love to. I've been advising the transition team. um, And it's been, it's, I think everybody at some point should, if they can, if they're asked to serve as a civil servant, they absolutely should. Uh, you're not really getting anything out of it aside from contributing to the policymaking that's dictating all of our collective outcomes and future. So it is something that I think if you're able to, you should do. So that's just, I just wanted to flag that. Do your civil service people. Yes. And so I'm extremely heartened by what I've seen with the Biden's efforts in the first 100 days, mm-hmm. the people he's put in office, the infrastructure bill, just how ambitious it is. And it really is. I mean, we're always going to have complaints on either sides of the political spectrum, but ultimately it is a solid plan for reaching net neutral by 2050. Mm -hmm. And if we are on track to do that, and if we're hitting all the benchmarks that we put in place on the way to 2050, especially with this climate summit that's coming up Thursday, this Thursday, Earth Mm Day, uh, there's really ambitious plans to reach that goal and some really solid marks to hit on the way. And that's sending a signal to countries around the world that they also need to step up because America has course corrected from the four years of the Trump administration and we're back on track. We recognize that there is hypocrisy in saying you have to do this when the U.S. didn't do its role um, for some time, right? We have to correct for historic racism within our country and Mm. we need to lead by example that not only are the changes we're talking about going to be positive for people going forward, but we're also looking at the inequity of the past and ensuring that there's going to be equitable distribution in the future going forward. So I think that needs to be, you're saying what is number one priority? That for me is the number one priority, is making this future equitable because otherwise there's so much technology and science and innovation here. I know transportation is gonna become fully electrified. Hmm. I know agriculture is gonna get there too. I'm very confident in human ingenuity and innovation and all of these things are really important. We need to overhaul the major polluters The hard ones are going to be uh, aviation and steel and cement. These are going to be tricky to do, but I don't doubt we'll get there too. Ultimately, though, as we think this through, the number one priority has to be, will this be equitable in the future? Because not only has it not been fair, forget fair, maybe humanitarian isn't going to be your thing. And unfortunately, a lot of people are like that. But this is a security and a collective well-being issue. Hmm. even more than it is fairness. We need a more fair, equitable future so we can actually be secure and have some stability and give our next generations hope that there's going to be something that comes out of putting in the work. And so for me, it's it's all about ensuring that there's going to be equal hope for the future, regardless of whether you are one of my family members in the Bay of Bengal, Calcutta, India, <laughs> and, or my father's extended family in Bangladesh that are in really vulnerable areas, or whether you are somebody that is born and raised in Ohio in 1960. It should be fair for all. So, Sweta, how do we empower the most vulnerable? How do we do that? We need to 
take advantage of the tools that we have today. So hmm. we really do have a lot of innovation that um, needs to be better distributed. Once people get access, then I think it's going to be a game changer. So one example is I work for a group called We Don't Have Time. It's free to use. It's an application and it's on, it's a website. It's a tool. It's a social network. It's for hmm. people who want to come together on climate action. And it, it's, an, it's a chance to connect a young person in Indonesia who would never be able to talk to somebody in Norway necessarily, naturally, on a campaign that's working in Norway that, oh, wait, this is actually something maybe I could try out in my community in Indonesia. And maybe I can like actually share, ask questions and see what worked and what didn't. And let's see if maybe this, this intervention or technology could be brought here or could be tried here. It's a social network for climate action to connect people from all over the world. We have 25 million plus reach. And the goal is to really amplify people's efforts. So young people, old, it doesn't matter what age demographic you're in or what geographic location you're in. If you can access, then you're no longer that one person or that one vulnerable community. Now you can amplify your efforts. You can join forces. You can find like-minded people. You can find support. You can even raise campaigns and build resources as you require. Mm -hmm. Let's take advantage of these kinds of tools. I mean, the beauty of you know speeding forward um, and using up all the world's resources. Yeah. Some good technologies have come out of this. So let's take advantage of it and save the planet while we have the chance. That's what I'd like to see happen. We link it up in our show notes as well. Now, I want to end it on a more positive note. I want to know what gives you hope about our trajectory and what are we doing right? And how can our listeners contribute to the progress? I love that. And look, I am hopeful. I say, I said in my TED talk, I'm a woman of childbearing age. And for a long time, I was really scared of having children because mm. of being a scientist who works in this space. I just felt like I knew too much. And I was fearful that in the future, my child would look at me and say, you know, you had me, even though you knew it was going to be like this. Mm. And people, you know, especially my parents who want to be grandparents, they're like, <laughs> can you please stop saying that? But it's true. But what gives me hope is the more I learn and the more I interact with people, I see that there is such a appetite for solving this and um, we can solve it. It's not that we don't have the solutions, by the way. It's a behavioral, it's a tiny behavioral tweak if we wanted to do it ultimately. If everybody right now, look, this isn't realistic, but it would work. If everybody decided to go vegan, it would work. I mean, all kinds of other issues would come up. Yeah. But the point is, is that we have solutions to solving the climate crisis and its ripple effects. We have science, we have technology, we have behavioral interventions. What we need is the um, willpower of people. We need to break through whatever barriers people have to resisting the reality of this crisis so people can act on it and so people can demand from their representatives to actually make the tough decisions, put in the investments now, proactively prepare because that's going to benefit people and result in better outcomes overall. And we can do that. So I am very hopeful in seeing just like the groundswell of people who want to make a difference. Greta Thunberg and other young people like um, Jamie Margolin, who started Zero Hour, and there was a young Indian girl who started Sunrise Movement. Mm. These are all young people-led activist groups that are really gaining momentum and they're working together and they're really doing this cry for action and holding previous generations, private sector, fossil fuels, and the UN, even at these different COPs, hmm. to account. And so once we see this level of demand for change, that's when you start seeing real implementation of some of these technologies that, that we already have in the pipeline. So I'm really heartened by human ingenuity and innovation 
And I'm also seeing the political will is on the rise, given what we're seeing with young people around the world. So overall, yes, I plan to have children. (laughs) (laughs) That's the takeaway. So in the end, if you were to describe America in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? Hopeful. Hmm. I like that. I like that. Thank you so much, Sweta. This was so good. Where can people find information about you, your work, if they want to follow you on Twitter, Instagram? Can you share your information? Yeah, so it's not spelled the way it's pronounced, which is the bane of my existence, but <laughs> my name is Shatta, but it's spelled S-W-E-T-A. Oh, oh it's fine. The, I pronounce it Bengali style, but Indian pronunciation is Shweta or Sweta. I mean, I don't mind at all. I always thought it was Sweta. I don't know why. That's actually probably what I should just say. But then my grandmother would be upset that I'm not saying Shanda. Ah. So it's a, this is something that I contend with on a regular basis. But at this point, I just, you have to laugh at it. Oh, wow. I should have asked. I feel like sometimes with uh, South Asian names, I feel confident and I'm like, oh, I know this name. I've heard it. I can pronounce it correctly, but I should have asked. And hopefully moving forward, I will say it as your grandmother would want us to say, (laughs) Sheta. But thank you for correcting me. I'm grateful that you did. It's important. I think name matters so much and we should always, always pronounce it correctly. That's very kind of you. So it's spelled S-W-E-T-A and you can find me on Instagram at S-W-E-T-A-C-H-A-K. That's the first four letters of my last name. And on Twitter, it's S-W-E-T-A-C with the first letter of my last name. And just my website can link to everything. So that's shatthachakraborty.com. And I appreciate you giving me the space to share all of that. This has been wonderful. Thank you, Sadia. Wow, such an important conversation. I hope all of you are motivated to do more within the realm of climate change and create more awareness because this planet is ours and it's so important for each of us to take care of it no matter where we live and to be cognizant of how our actions impact people living across the globe. Let's have some empathy, people for everyone and I apologize again to Shetha for mispronouncing her name I am very particular about how we pronounce other people's names I should have asked her so my apologies until next time when we have another incredible guest take care